Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. All right. You're all done with the stupid Olympics, finally. Let's get back to work. Saw a bunch of you came crawling back. <laughs> oh, boy. Hi, guys. It's, Hello. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, and with me as always is Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College. Uh, Dr. Phil Barker uh, from Keene State College is actually out this week, but um, we have uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh from uh, North Central College joining us again, and I, it, this it's going to be a regular thing now. Yeah, great so, to be here. Yeah, welcome nice back to, to be here. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to wonder if Phil uh, hears when I'm coming and then finds a way out. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long time since I saw it. It has. He was sick last week, and he's traveling this week. So uh, yeah, he's a, he's a man of mystery. He is a man of mystery. <laughs> he's a man of mystery. There it is. Lots yeah. of trips to Moscow. That's I'm right. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, next uh, next time I'm around, we might have rulings. Yes. Uh, Supreme this Court. Is, this is the best time of year to be a, a Supreme Court geek. Yeah. Uh, there's some thinking Carpenter might come down this month. That's a cell phone privacy case. Yes. Uh, Gill and gerrymandering might come down this month. That's a big one. Uh, I think people are thinking Masterpiece is one of those ones that they issue and then they all go on vacation mm-hmm. rather than stay around for the backlash. And but, which one is the master? Which one's that? Uh, the bakery. Bakery. And, that's right. That's right. Obligation to bake. Yeah. So it's a great time of year. Cert petitions are coming in. Really interesting one this week. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's the Madison case. It involves the question of whether or not the Eighth Amendment prohibits us from executing a person who can't remember the crime for which he has been convicted. I saw that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So there's no question about whether this guy has dementia. Uh, The record's pretty clear that both sides agree he does. So the question isn't, is he faking it or something like that? Mm -hmm. The question is whether or not the Eighth Amendment prohibits executing a person when they don't know why they're being executed. Mm. And so the court will be ruling on that? 18. So uh, it'll be one of the first cases next October. Interesting. Yeah, we've got some. Yeah, that'll be a tough good one. Things coming up. We've got we've got some good legal conversations today as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I guess to start off with it's something we kind of skirted around the past couple weeks. Just the the gun debate just has has kind of taken over mainstream media, and it's probably something that we should be paying attention to. I guess we didn't really skirt it, but um, it's it's gotten really. It's it's something that we haven't seen before, at least to this pitch. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I mean, these students from uh, from the shooting in uh, in Parkland, Florida, have have kind of created this uh, this 
movement that I never, ever thought that I would ever see in, a, in the gun debate. You felt like this debate was stuck in place and there wasn't going to be any movement one way or the other. And mm-hmm. there would be conversations yeah. for a couple days afterwards and then it would go away. Right. But that's not happening. You're seeing real movement in terms of the American public. Today, this afternoon, Donald Trump was doing, I guess, a press conference, or not press conference, talking with, and he was talking about fairly extensive background checks. Mm-hmm. He's going to do the bump stock. This was, you know, a Republican president saying he's going to lead on gun reform. Mm-hmm. That, this is, in some ways, unimaginable yeah. six months ago. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. The, the popular vote seems to be Trump and the NRA money. Yes. I mean, I, I, politicians, I think, right now are more afraid of voter backlash than mm-hmm. they are of NRA pulling yeah. funding. And it's interesting, like, why now? Is it simply because these high school students were able to to make a case different than it's been made in the, in the past? Or I, I, I'm not exactly sure what's unique about this moment if we've finally hit a hit a critical mass where the public is finally pushing back. But there is certainly something distinct. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel different. Yeah, I, I I don't know. It's um in my opinion it's a, a weird kind of um um side effect of the, the populist movement that was put in place. And we're seeing more and more of these I don't wanna say rash, but immediate um responses to heady uh, just uh, topics and, and issues that we never really saw before. And whether th- in some cases it's it's a good thing. And I, I think this is one of those cases where it could potentially be a good thing, depending on how politicized it gets. Or it could turn really, really ugly in the case of some of the other issues that uh, sure. have been affected by this. It, it would be great if we could have an evidence-based discussion. No. No, no. No. <laughs> Let's just stop. Of, you know, of numbers. You know, somebody, the number I saw today was 35,000 Americans are killed every year in gun violence, right? So, so thinking about that, understanding that what's what are the causal dynamics there, and having a real conversation about, you know, like we do after nine eleven, you can make meaningful changes to make things safer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so some of the polling that came out this week was fascinating me. So overall, seventy percent of those polled said they would back stricter gun laws, which is up from fifty two percent in October following the Las Vegas shooting. But for me, most interesting. The support extends to gun-owning households where 57% support stricter gun laws. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a huge jump Mm -hmm. uh, where you're saying, you know, a good chunk of the country is saying it's time to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that looks like, I don't think it's clear yet, but Mm -hmm. at least there's the idea that we need to move forward on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Trump wants to arm teachers. (laughs) I was going to say, just going backwards, another one. I I think what's happened, at least in part here, is that people have seen the NRA as so... uh, not just polarizing, but sitting at the absolute far end of any reasonable spectrum. I, I don't know if you know what their two legislative priorities this year are. You know what they are? I do not. Legalizing silencers. Awesome. Okay. And uh, <laughs> concealed carry reciprocity across state lines. Mm-hmm. Oh, straight across. Wow. So, so what they've said is that the two most important things to us right now are to put silencers on guns and make sure if you've got a concealed carry license in one state, it, get re- it gets reciprocity in another. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think even gun owners, um, I, I'm in this category. I have guns for hunting. Uh, I'm appalled yeah. that the NRA can't find middle ground, even on things like bump stocks, for which I, I can't think of a plausible uh, defense. Sure. And when you see the corporate money moving on, that, that is somewhat telling. When Delta mm-hmm. and a whole host of other corporations were saying, we're withdrawing mm-hmm. 
uh, our support for the NRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a big deal because they're deal. they're thinking about the bottom line. Yep. I mean, they care about politics, but at the end of the day, it's really about the, mm-hmm. the revenue. So, oh, yeah. God, yeah. I would have been an NRA member if I knew that Delta had discounts. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Although I guess FedEx is sticking; they're they're not giving up the support yet. But uh, no, it really is fascinating, and you wonder whether the NRA has put themselves in a corner where yeah. they're now they're now undermining their own argument mm-hmm. that they're going to lose support. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be more flexible. Yeah, well, they've built their entire legislative philosophy on the slippery slope argument, Mm -hmm. that if they give up uh, any uh, ground on anything, the whole gun, you know, house of cards falls apart. Uh, And I think most Americans are more sophisticated than that. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that you'd give in on the gun, uh, the bump stock, just pick one, and that's going to pull apart the entire universe of gun laws and protections, I, I don't think many people see that as true. And even this weekend they had, uh, I can't think of her name, the spokesman for the NRA was on a bunch of the talking head shows, and mm-hmm. the aggressiveness, the confrontationalness mm-hmm. of, of her approach, I thought it's just, it's bad optics to see this, to this inability to move and be flexible on things. And, mm-hmm. That said, uh, she's been called a murderer right, uh, virtually everywhere well, she went right, right. Uh, in loud, harsh, <laughs> strident voices. That's a tough gig. Maybe she's a little tired <laughs> yes. now, right? You know, <laughs> It turns out the NRA didn't kill anybody in, <laughs> right. in Parkland or anywhere else, uh, and and yet uh, you know she's a murderer. Sure. And, and Marco mm. Rubio is like looking down the barrel of a gun. I think was another right. one of the lines right. from this week. It has not been an entirely civil. No, uh, that's dialogue. So Tom, you and I we're both in education, and one of the conversations this week was the idea of arming mm-hmm. teachers. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and I will be honest, you know, we're in higher ed, uh, but I also have children in elementary and junior high, and I think about all those dynamics, the teachers I meet there, the faculty I deal with here, and I don't think there's anything scarier than the idea of arming some of yeah, us yeah. on campus. Uh, but what were your 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 reactions to to that idea? Uh, uh, at a personal level, I'm not eager to be armed in a yeah. classroom. I had a little fun with it with my uh, senior seminar this week about, boy, you'd never be late again. We can be <laughs> sure of that. <laughs> no one would be on their cell phones during right. class, yeah. right. would be right. my guess. Um, I, I, you know, I did have one thought about this, and it, and it is this. The Second Amendment, you know, has been uh, premised on this business of a, a well-armed militia. And uh, in order to preserve a, a well-ordered society, And I found myself wondering if a clever person couldn't make the argument that arming public people like teachers isn't the modern equivalent of a militia. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to anymore uh, make this argument. I mean, the Second Amendment's been incorporated. You've got a right to own a gun. But there's an incredible range of state regulation that's still absolutely available. The Supreme Court went out of its way in Heller to say, you know, arming felons, uh, mentally ill, uh, unusual and um, especially dangerous guns. All of these things are regulatable, uh, consistent with the Second Amendment. Uh, but I, I, it started to sort of intrigue me yeah. that, that yeah. maybe there's a new way of thinking about the militia <laughs> in the modern universe, and it is armed teachers. teachers. <laughs> <laughs> I say this with my tongue in my yeah, cheek yeah. a little bit here, right? Nick, armed teachers? This is the thing about that argument, because it it comes across that you're saying we need to mandate that all teachers need to be armed in some capacity, when it's realistically people who are licensed gun owners should be allowed to carry their weapons in their educational institutions, or if they choose to, take the proper training courses to allow them to carry those guns in those educational institutions, which realistically... I, I don't have a huge problem with. I don't think it's an ideal scenario, mm-hmm. but I don't know what an ideal scenario is mm-hmm. 
at this so is it better to arm the teachers or is it better to turn these into you know schools into makeshift prisons where every kid has mm-hmm. to go through metal detectors and right. random bag searches and mm-hmm. canines and everything it's i i don't know if i was a student like growing up when very long time ago uh when i was in high school or or grade school it wasn't that just wasn't a thing right. not that it you know wasn't in in a lot of other places but the thought of having to do that every day and being able to completely focus on what you're supposed to focus on and not have that kind of in the back of your mind is I don't that doesn't sit right with me and I know a lot of people especially in large urban areas have to deal with it every day I don't think that's right yeah. mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't know what a good scenario was at this point it's fair there are a lot of schools that already have security guards and they have that's armed right. individuals and it, it depends on the, the nature of the campus and the school I guess for me if this becomes the solution in lieu of other things, that would be problematic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I right. guess I, I don't know right. what to think about having... I don't like the idea of arming teachers. I'm not opposed to having additional security guards. But if that's it, if we say, okay, this is the solution and we're not mm-hmm. going to think about anything else, that troubles me because I think there's more that could be done in a in a practical and meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's room to mandate something along the line because there are... There are a significant amount of security guards in educational institutions that can carry weapons. A lot of them can't. I mean, it's being able to mandate a you know set amount of security for a school that seems more appropriate to me, and having them have to carry a weapon seems more appropriate as opposed to arming random. Right. English and social studies right. teachers that does not quite <laughs> that's that's so maybe the, it may be part of the response here is to take the word mandate off the table mm-hmm. right I mean I think everybody's talking about it and I think you did too a minute mm-hmm. ago about uh, making it possible not making it obligatory right. uh, and, and in a package of things that could be a very attractive mm-hmm. thing right mm-hmm. I mean so that somebody who's got a lot a, a marine uh, somebody who's back from uh, active service who knows how to use a weapon um, I, I'm still a little nervous about the appearance of it, mm-hmm. yes. But but listen, we're at a point in American history where kids are going to start going through if they're not already metal detectors, as you've both said, they're going to be walking past armed security guards in the hallway. I don't know. I, maybe the the teacher they love and respect is somebody they prefer mm-hmm. uh, to know is armed rather than the security mm-hmm. guard or the police officer. They may not. Sure. Uh, hard to say. I, you're going to see the laboratory of the states work on this, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't think the president uh, has the authority to do what he says he hopes will happen. I think that's right. Because Texas right now already has laws where teachers can be armed. I can't remember if it was Ohio, but there's there's a handful of states, and you may see more that pursue that. Mm -hmm. And you'll also see some other states Mm -hmm. that, you know, the sort of federal issue, some states have pushed back to say we don't want anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. And you could could see that all play out. Yeah, Um, yeah. So you brought up the Second Amendment, which is an interesting thing to me, and it made me look back at Heller a little bit. Which one is that? And you're absolutely right that there's... The Second Amendment doesn't speak to this in terms of all of the regulation that is being considered could be consistent with an interpretation of the Second Amendment. Even Scalia himself, in that decision, said that there yeah. is there are a lot of ways in which mm-hmm. the government can absolutely regulate arms. Yes. Uh, uh, he went out of his way to say it. Yeah. Um, and, and let's say this. There's something like 7,300 gun laws in the United States of America. The number of gun laws has gone up every year for decades. Um, it's not at all clear that it's had much of an effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it certainly follows an arc that looks a little bit like the same one that uh, uh, mass shootings follows. 
more gun laws, more mass shootings. Um, that's not to say that there wouldn't be more if there were fewer gun laws or something like that. But, but the plain reality is that the places that are most regulated are the most violent, mm-hmm. and gun laws don't appear to be having any meaningful effect on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would suggest that there's got to be more than just that. Or 26 miles west of one right now. Right. Chicago's got among the most aggressive gun laws in the United States of America. And we're 650 murders with firearms mm-hmm. last year or something yeah. like that. It's, it's a complicated problem, and I think it, we have to be careful not to oversimplify the causal factors. Yeah. And also, I mean, as much as I think the NRA deserves some criticism, th- this dynamic is broader than the NRA. The NRA is reflecting a gun culture in the United States, which, you know, that also feeds into this as well. Mm-hmm. So even if the NRA moderates, I think there also has to be shifts in the public opinion, which is kind of what we're seeing, too. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question that I have is, does the political will to make meaningful change after all of this, does it continue to hold out? Because I'm starting to see a little bit of a a slowdown. There's, I mean, obviously there are debates happening in the executive and and legislative um, uh, branches and obviously the public discourse, but it's already starting to wane a little bit. And if I, I can easily see a a scenario where you know we ban bump stocks, you know, we somehow regulate, I'll you know magazines, magazines, size. magazines, sure. which we've seen over and over Mental again, and checks, doesn't do anything. Mental health periods. checks, right? Yeah, we're gonna you know I, we're gonna stop manufacturing the AR-15, mm-hmm. and there are a huge amount of other weapons that operate just like that. And nobody gives a shit because it's always the AR-15 that's yeah. the culprit. So I don't know if there are just going to be some sacrificial lambs put on the altar and mm-hmm. that'll be the end of it, but I, I don't know. It feels different, and I kind of hope that it's different, but I don't know if we have the political will to actually see see this through. Dick Sporting Goods says today, we're not going to sell the AR-15 right. anymore. Yeah. But they're going to continue to sell semi-automatic shotguns, right. semi-automatic long barrel rifles, mm-hmm. uh, and, and semi-automatic handguns. Right. Uh, the AR-15 is a cosmetics thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 is, it is virtually indistinguishable from dozens of other guns in terms of caliber, in terms of the, semi-automatic. is just simply semi-automatic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what it looks like. Yep. That's what it is. I share your skepticism, Thank although you. I will say Donald Trump I, Donald Trump could have had an easy out on this. He could have gone for bump stocks and called it a good day mm-hmm. and say, I'm done. We tried. He seems to be pushing. So I don't think that's going to lead to long-term solutions, but I am more optimistic than I would have been in some ways because of Donald Trump because mm-hmm. he it feels like he has been he has been inspired. So you. Yes. You believe him in this particular situation. I believe that he has been the first politician, specifically first Republican politician, yep. to directly criticize the NRA. I, that right. is significant. Mm-hmm. That opens up little di- political discourse, mm-hmm. and there's the opportunity that we get some change. There's no guarantee, but I think that that opens it, uh, it, it moves us in a better place. So yeah, well, Background checks are not low-hanging fruit. The bump stock is. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, mm-hmm. There aren't plausible arguments for that right. thing. Uh, but but broader federal ID, uh, that, that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for a president to say as vigorously as he has, I'm for that, that I'm, I'm with Bill. Yeah. Uh, that's meaningful. I, yeah. I hope both of you are right. I, 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 let's, let's go to the videotape. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, really? I mean, right. there have been plenty of other times where we've yeah. had this discussion, yeah. and then 
you know, the floor drops out at literally the last second. I, I don't know if I've been inspired by Trump. I, you know, today I heard today. you say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that'll be on the intro. <laughs> Retraction. <laughs> right, right. Well, should we jump to our second topic? Mm-hmm. This is a good one. So, uh, free speech, free riders, and organized labor. So let me introduce it a little bit. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard an oral argument in a case that is generating a ton of national attention and could dramatically impact the future of organized labor. At issue is whether public sector unions may require workers who are not members to help pay for the union's collective bargaining efforts. The challengers argue that all compulsory fees violate their First Amendment rights. Unions reject this position, arguing that collective bargaining is distinct from political activity. Public sector unions fear an anti-union decision could be financially disastrous and ensure that they don't have proper resources to negotiate and lobby for their own worker rights. Uh, The decision is going to have impact free speech and have significant impact on the Democratic Party's fundraising efforts as we move to the midterm election. So, Tom, you were the one who suggested this was was an important case. The more I looked into it, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, So why don't you start us off on on what you see as most interesting in all this? Sure. And just maybe a couple background facts. Uh, Janice is an Illinois state worker. Uh, He is not a union member. He pays $50 a month in agency fees and thinks that he's paid something like $6,000 over his employment period in Illinois. Illinois is a state, uh, and and let's be clear about this, uh, the minority of states do agency fees. Uh, 27 states are right-to-work states. Uh, 23 allow agency fees. Um, So part of the debate here about the existential crisis that faces public sector unions Uh, I think is overblown. There are public sector unions in all 50 states. Uh, Public sector union membership is relatively stable since the 60s. Um, That's true notwithstanding the fact that there's been a very significant movement toward right-to-work states. Um, So I guess with that background, what I'd say is um, there was some really interesting give and take at the court. Uh, Most of the court watchers uh, characterize this as a very tense uh, argument. Uh, The lawyers ran into very hostile questioning from the justices. Um, And what's interesting, of course, is that this is the third time in four years they've taken this question up. The last time uh, they deadlocked four to four in the Fredericks case, and then, uh, or because of uh, Justice Scalia's death, they deadlocked four to four. So this is not a new question, and we know where eight of the nine justices stand on it. (laughs) So unless there has been a radical change in the thinking uh, among those, and and nothing at the oral argument suggested there was, this whole thing comes down to Justice Gorsuch. Who who didn't ask a question. Who didn't say (laughs) a word. Um, And and he, just so we're all clear, he has been very vocal from the moment he sat down uh, behind that bench from the first day. So he's not Clarence so Thomas. Much, so much so <laughs> that there are people speculating in some of the you know, so, sort of Supreme Court watcher er, that he aggravates the chief justice. Oh, God. Uh, I, he's the junior. He's the guy in charge of the cafeteria and the, you know, the basketball <laughs> league. And the newbie. He's the furthest guy from the center. He, uh, but, boy, he is very active. His opinions are very provocative. He has no trouble pushing back against the most senior members. Um, the conventional wisdom is he's going to be on the Alito side. Uh, but, uh, you know, he doesn't have a history here other than that people perceive him to be conservative. Uh, and I th- that's not unreasonable, but he doesn't have a history here on labor questions that uh, makes that empirically defensible. I think people just see him as philosophically aligned with that end of the court. Um, why he was quiet, who knows? 
The most interesting exchange in the oral argument was uh, Justice Kennedy, who asks um, AFSCME's lawyer, if Janice wins, will unions have less political influence? AFSCME's lawyer says yes, and Kennedy says, isn't that the end of the case? <laughs> I mean, which is to say, if you concede that Janice winning reduces the political effect, or I should say the political power of public sector unions, then you have conceded that Janice is paying for political speech. Mm-hmm. So to that point, there was a recent paper on this topic, mm-hmm. uh, and they looked at the question of, it found that the Democratic share of the presidential vote dropped by an average of 3.5 percentage points after the passage of right-to-work laws. So that there's a direct impact on Democratic voters mm-hmm. when those go away. And it's a, it's a bit of a connection to say it goes back to the money. But yes, absolutely. So, so if the Democrats, case turns on, is this political speech, Kennedy hit it in one question. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I just paid my property tax bill today. I'm appalled. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and let me say the vast majority of it is going to public sector union yeah, members. Sure. Uh, so I, I've got a horse in this, uh, in this race. But... Uh, to pretend this isn't political speech, I, I think Kennedy's um, his sense that this isn't even a hard argument is one that I think a lot of people share. And uh, AFSCME's lawyer didn't even try and pretend that it wouldn't reduce political power or, or influence. Um, and and uh, as I was saying to Bill before we started here, there's only one private institution in the United States of America that can collect revenue without consent. Only one, public sector unions. So they're a huge outlier in this ability to say to a person, you must pay in, even though you don't agree with us, don't have membership with us. Uh, This is not a thing that other people do. There are some briefs that suggest it's analogous to paying in income taxes or something like that. But I I think those are inapt. This is a private institution, uh, a labor union. It is not the government state, federal, county, local, or whatever. Uh, so, so that makes them very different when they are compelling uh, revenue collections. So what do you see the difference? So some of the examples have been the government forces us to buy car insurance. The government forces us to, I'm trying to think what the other examples, oh, doctors, you have to pay for your license. What's distinct between the government saying you have to sp- spend something on that versus you have to support your union? Well, I, I guess I say two things to that. The first thing is the difference is that the AFSCME is not government. Okay. And, and that's, that's not an insignificant difference. That when the state of Illinois says for the public good, we're going to make sure doctors have a license, it's entirely different than AFSCME saying so that we can negotiate pay raises paid for by taxpayers. Uh, we need an agency fee from you because you might benefit from those pay raises. That is not the same in my judgment as... Illinois requiring a medical license or the federal government collecting money and then doing whatever they do with it, right? Uh, They are a private entity. Uh, They are not government. And uh, that's the the huge difference uh, for me. The second is that uh, let's remember that this is a case that is asking the court probably to overturn an existing uh, precedent. This is the Abood case. Listeners might not know that the Supreme Court very rarely overturns itself. Uh, some people think as few as 50 times. It's, you have to read, a, uh, to read the cases very carefully to decide whether they're, you know, sort of in Brown versus Board, totally overruling Plessy, or just pulling back on something. But it's a handful of times in 225 round years of, of jurisprudence. This doesn't happen often. So if they overturn Abood, it's a big deal. Abood 
said, you can collect an agency fee for the purpose of representing a person in collective bargaining, but you cannot compel them to participate in political speech. Everybody agrees the Abood standard doesn't work on the right and the left, because where you draw that line is virtually impossible. Um, so the court's going to have to decide, do we continue with the Abood approach, which doesn't appear to be working, or do we overturn Abood uh, and create a new regime? Breyer, people think, was trying to find middle ground, but that's what Abood did in the past. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see, is there some way of doing this that doesn't just simply say, you can opt out and that's the end of the conversation. This is fascinating. All right, Nick, because <laughs> I got more, but I don't want to. <laughs> no, no, please go ahead. Okay, so yeah. one of the other things I was reading about today was uh, we were talking before we went on air that there are, while in general this movement has been supported by conservatives, and there's some pretty heavy uh, conservative financial backers to mm-hmm. to the case, but there are also some conservatives pushing back against this that, mm-hmm. are, that filed briefs against it. And one uh, by Post and Freed, uh, I'm not that right, but they were they were expressing some concern that this could set in motion drastic changes in the First Amendment doctrine. That once you start saying, okay, this is where the First Amendment doctrine plays, there are other ways that the government could be forced to then address similar First Amendment claims. So somebody in your you're at an office, government office, and uh, you're out sick, can somebody go into your desk to grab a book? Or if uh, you're in the workroom and a sergeant uh, is talking to somebody below him and the guy tells him a story and he says, I got to go, I got to do something. Is he disrespecting his First Amendment rights? So I guess the question is, are we opening the door to other First Amendment cases relating to the to government work? And mm-hmm. is, is that troubling yeah. or is that not as prominent as, as an issue like this? The door's already open. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when we get to the boys' uh, lawsuit relative to gerrymandering, uh, we could bring this up again. There are a lot of people worried that the First Amendment has become a part of virtually every constitutional case filed with the Supreme Court in one way or another. It's in Masterpiece. It's in uh, the Minnesota case that was argued relative to the T-shirt I talked about this last time. It's become the case that the first is the default amendment for virtually every public grievance in America. And there is some concern about whether or not uh, uh, we're essentially making the First Amendment this blanket protection for every liberty uh, any particular American wants to have. That said, that doesn't mean you don't apply it in cases where it ought to be applied. Janice says that unions are representing positions he doesn't agree with, and he wants the ability not to be associated with them. That feels to me very First Mm Amendment-like, and he doesn't want words put in his mouth by them. That also feels very First Amendment to me. Uh, So I think we should be careful. I mean, again, you can. this is the slippery slope argument, right? right? Do it here, and and all of a sudden we're going to do it here and here and there and there. And I, I guess I think reasonable people can make good judgments about where the law applies and where it doesn't. Mm-hmm. This feels to me like a First Amendment case. I know Eugene Volokh says that it's not. He thinks there's no speech component to this case. So then hmm. moving forwards, if, if Gorsuch rules with Alito, mm-hmm. suddenly you have a 5-4 decision. This overturns yep. precedent. Uh, and you Probably prob- overturns. Probably. That's right. Uh, then unions could have free riders. where they would, Individuals would have the option, right, to pay well, the dues or not. You know, here's the difference. Uh, you're going to think of it that way. Yeah. In fact, uh, when people call these free ride fees, you know how they feel about this case. Yes. When they call them something else, you know how they do. I think unions are going to be better for a ruling in favor of Janus. That is, they're going to be compelled to represent people in a market where people can choose to be members or not. 
Uh, and, and it seems to me it would be an entirely positive thing if AFSCME had to go back to its constituency regularly to say, what do you believe? Mm-hmm. How do we well represent you? And if we can't, you got a right to get out. Uh, this, feel, this feels quintessentially American to me. <laughs> you know, if, if we can't make the case that we're valuable, quit. Yeah. That's interesting. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. It's interesting because I think the legal argument I find compelling. The political implications of it uh, are a little, are, are significant. Well, the, I mean, the telltale thing will be if this does happen. Yeah. What happens to things like Citizens United well, or ex- something like that? When, yeah. When does it actually start affecting uh, people at the other end of the political spectrum to the point where it's no longer comfortable or convenient for it to? That's interesting. It, yeah. It does seem to me that conservatives, if they win this case, will have Citizens United to their benefit. And then this as well, or for conservative causes, Republican causes, uh, because it makes it more difficult for Democrat Democratic unions to raise political speech money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- they're, at, they're at a significant disadvantage, and I'm sure Democrats are worried about this going into the midterms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but here's a, uh, unions are already protected by Citizens United. The question here isn't whether they're going to get more or less protection under Citizens. The question is whether they're going to be able to solicit membership right, sure. that wants right. to contribute mm-hmm. yeah. to speech. Sure. Right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, maybe you're disturbed on your end of the spectrum and maybe Republicans on theirs, but I don't know from my libertarian perspective. Sure. I kind of like the idea that a union's going to have to stay to its, uh, say to its constituency, do you support the positions we are taking? Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you're not obligated to be a member. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm trying to imagine what's wrong with that position mm-hmm. other than and I recognize the free rider uh, argument isn't without merit, but do we trump constitutional rights because somebody got a pay raise in a collective bargaining agreement that was intrinsically politi- sure. uh, political? I think we don't. As long as I mean I, I'm on board as long as we continue to have unions having some ability to push back. If we see this as undermining workers' rights and the ability of unions to organize, then I think it's and I don't know if we know that yet, right? Uh, if mm-hmm. if they have the ability to continue to bargain and push back, uh, you know, being from Wisconsin, I've seen some of the ways in mm-hmm. which the state government has pushed yeah. back at workers' rights, uh-huh. union rights, and I, and I think it, to the detriment of unions at some point. Um, but well, I mean, we're you know we're taping outside of a city that is notorious for the power of, yeah, of the, the structure of its unions. Yeah. I I agree with Tom. If they have to now work for the actual benefit of their specific constituents Mm -hmm. and find out what are the the issues that are actually affecting them i don't see how that would i I mean in the sense of some political capital maybe but effectiveness for the people you're actually supposed to be representing no i i i think that's that's a net gain how about this nick for two summers in grad school i worked as a roofer Uh i worked short enough where i didn't have to join the union I didn't join the union. I free rode. <laughs> See? You know? Good job, Bill. And so you my that fear system. is that others will follow my path. Yeah, and then, whatever. You know, organized labor suffers. So, uh, But I do think we should come back to this. Roughly 40% of all public sector workers are in unions today. And in 1965, roughly 40% of all public sector union or members were in unions. I'm sorry. Workers yeah, were right. in unions. It hasn't been the death of the public sector union that 27 states have said you got a right to work here whether you join or not. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't. So I, I, one could imagine, maybe I'm being excessively optimistic here, a really interesting uh, evolution of what it looks like to represent worker rights. 
starting with, you have to represent mm-hmm. all of them. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I don't, again, yeah. this, this seems to be non-controversial. Sure. Um, all right, we should talk some beers. Yeah. So, Tom, you brought a wonderful beer. Why don't you tell the uh, listeners what you got? Uh, I have a uh, Cocoa Brown Ale. Uh, it is uh, a very light beer, about 4.8 uh, ABV, uh, very heavy on uh, unsweetened cocoa and lactose. Uh, brewed for and named after my wife, Island Girl. <laughs> so there it is. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. It was really good. Uh, it was a different Thanks. type of brown. Yeah, you said cocoa and lactose. Mm-hmm. Uh, no hops in it. Virtually no hops. Yes, yeah, which so, you can feel the absence, it, mm-hmm. and it was kind of uh-huh. nice. The the unsweetened cocoa is what gives it uh, a bit of a bitterness, mm-hmm. not uh, a ton of hops. So it's got. Uh, this is for the beer geeks in the universe, uh, about an ounce of East Kent Goldings, but only for the last 10 minutes of the boil. So um, <laughs> it's it's very little hop, yeah. uh, but but still a little bit of bitter from the cocoa. That's great. Yeah. This is, again, one of those situations where we should probably know some of the shit yeah. when yeah. I talk about beer. <laughs> so a, a beer that we're going to open in just a minute is uh, Midnight Pig Beer. And the, actually, the name of the beer is Sti- Snitches Get Stitches, uh, which I think is relevant because our first speed round topic is Muller and Gates. But uh, it is a robust porter. Uh, we haven't tried it yet, but it looks looks very, very good. Yay. So, yes. <laughs> so, uh, speed rounds. Sure. And, and beer. And beer, yes. Um, yeah, as you do that. So, um, talking about the Mueller investigation, how screwed is Paul Manafort? I do like the titles that you put on <laughs> yes. this. Um, do you want me to yeah, just read through this? You? Yeah, I'm pouring a beer, yeah. All right, so just some quick background. Uh, on Friday, former Trump campaign official Rick Gates pleaded guilty to two criminal charges in the Mueller investigation. Gates is the third Trump associate known to be working with Mueller. His plea deal would seem to put a lot of pressure on his former friend, colleague, and Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. Gates was Manafort's uh, right-hand man for a decade and is likely to know all of his secrets. Given that the case against Manafort appeared to to already be very strong, what are we to make of the deal Mueller has struck with Gates? Boom. Boom. Okay. And, uh, oh, yeah, I got Get the bill. Yeah. So for me, and we, we started talking about this before we came on air... The case against Manafort seems really, really strong. That you know, the Mueller has put it together. It's a lot of financial crimes. It's a lot of data. It's easy to see what's going on here. I saw some legal experts saying that it, it feels like a case where you're ninety to ninety-five percent sure you've got him. Now, if you get Gates to flip on Manafort, he said maybe that bumps it to ninety-seven and ninety-eight. The question I keep having is: Is that worth it, or or is there something else going on there? Is this a uh, is Mueller trying to squeeze Manafort by putting Gates? I mean, the, what what's the legal rationale when you've got somebody dead to rights? Why give somebody else a sweet deal? Because it feels like Gates is getting a good deal here. It felt like uh, the National Security Advisor got a great deal but, but, as well. But we should back up and just say one thing informationally. We don't know that Gates got a, a great deal here. We don't know pre-sentencing. Uh, what exactly he's got? He pleaded guilty. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not aware that we know exactly what justice has given him. Uh, now, one expects that he, he, he's gotten some consideration for uh, some sort of cooperation, but um, he's not necessarily walking away with no punishment. What they said is that the charges would be five to seven years, but it was Mueller's team that said, with proper cooperation, mm-hmm. probation. 
which to me with that proper feels... cooperation. Right. So, so that's not never a... trust a lawyer who puts a qualification right. on something. Right. Yeah. With proper cooperation, you're not going to jail. Well, other... So what does that produce? Right. Proper cooperation <laughs> or lying. Right. right. Well, that's the thing. He lied. So it was. Um, I'm trying to. Think. I can't remember the name. What they call it when they're they're having this session where Gates was telling him everything that he knew in putting together this deal. Mm-hmm. Gates lied. And Mueller caught him in the lie, mm-hmm. and that was the second charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there's anybody you shouldn't give a deal to, it's somebody who lied, never lied to the FBI mm-hmm. when you're trying to work out a deal. But there was yep. something of value there where they still said, this is worth our time. And I just, I'm, I'm surprised I, I'm by astonished it. That, that there are lawyers saying that this is a sort of 95 to 98 percent. Um, uh, let's start by saying these are all process indictments. None of these people, I shouldn't say all and all, but... Um, Mueller hasn't caught anybody colluding. Mm-hmm. Mueller hasn't caught anybody working with Russians in ways that, uh, uh, even though I've heard it many times said, affected the election. These are about lying to Mueller. Mm-hmm. So when you have a whole bunch of people who lied and you're going to put them on the stand to testify against each other, jurors won't be forgiven for saying, who do we believe? None of them. Sure. So I think Mueller's got a real interest in making sure that he can secure a conviction against Manafort, who appears to be the biggest fish at this point, and lining up as much as he possibly can to support that uh, case makes sense to me. So if he is, and he may be the highest level that Mueller goes to. Might be. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Sure. Might be. Is there any possibility that he's doing this as a way of squeezing Manafort to flip on somebody else? Sure. Okay. For what the well, the strategy doesn't for make bigger, sense. A bigger fish. Right? No, I yeah, I get it. I, but I mean, he's nibbling up the chain. Yeah, but he so seems to Gates. constantly be nibbling at the same fish. Like it's, it, I, yeah. I don't. Right, that's I, that's the thing. Right, well, now, I, like you said, there's no evidence above this level so far that we know of. Sure. So, but one guy eh. who would know that would be Manafort. So Manafort was hanging out with Don Jr., hanging out with some of the other not not Trump probably, but. You know, there's a level above Manafort, which would be Kushner, Don Jr., that yeah, circle. Yeah. Uh, that might be the bigger fish. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to know. Uh, I feel like we would have heard something, some inkling that sure. there's some sort of connection to a higher level figure at this point. We're, what, 10 Mueller. months? in the, he's Mueller? Sneaky. He's sneaky. Oh, I thought you were saying well, him. He's, he's going to he's indict also, himself. He has also run an airtight investigation. Mm-hmm. There aren't leaks. There aren't people... Uh, you know, on his team talking to the press, at least that we know. I, so maybe we don't know it's because possible. he's really managed to figure out a way in federal <laughs> be, government yes. to stop people from leaking. Uh, it, Manafort has to feel pressure that he didn't feel last week. Right. Uh, so so Gates is another uh, part of a trial strategy that his lawyers are going to have to rebut. If he knows something and Mueller thinks or knows that he knows, this ratchets up the pressure on him. If you are Manafort, why aren't you looking for a deal? You're 68 years old. Mm-hmm. You've got potentially the rest of your life in jail. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why he's not more interested in finding some solution to all of this. Well, again, we don't know that he's not. Yeah. Uh, and it might very well be his lawyers are actively engaged in negotiating a deal. And it would be a much bigger deal <laughs> yes. if he does know something. That is, if all Gates can do is, is throw shit on Manafort... You know, whatever. If Manafort can ruin a presidency, uh, believe me, that's a that's a different kind of negotiation altogether. Mm-hmm. 
And it would have so, to reach to that level, right? You're not going to give Manafort a deal unless it is something significant. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. Significant. Because right. he is he is a high level guy yeah. and engaged in some pretty nefarious yeah. international yeah, banking. Lawyers behavior. like everybody else have egos. Yeah. I know that comes as a surprise to you. <laughs> so I, I can't imagine Mueller doesn't want to see some of these things go to trial. It's headline news yeah. for week after week. But if he goes, he's got to win. And, and having Gates in his stable helps, even if he is sure. uh, a serial prevaricator. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, okay, enough Mueller, Nick. <laughs> I, 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 we, we talk about it every, I don't, I don't see it. Like, the only thing that is going to matter out of this situation is if there is some sort of indictment of the president. And I don't think there's evidence of that. Or if they find something, it will be, again, the term that we talked about, in the past couple of weeks, they were unwittingly a part of some sort of Russian right. conspiracy that they were not aware of, sure. which seems infinitely more likely that they were really, really stupid that th- than right. they were. This, I know. just want to be sure I'm on the same page. This is the Russian conspiracy to fool around on Facebook and drive around on parade floats. With, right, right. Yeah, okay. That's yeah, correct. That, that's uh-huh. the one. Yeah. I'm going to return to what I thought a month ago, <laughs> and that is that Americans are stupid and lazy well, if it really changed the election. <laughs> Which it didn't. Uh, two things can be true. Yeah. <laughs> that they're stupid and lazy? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Let's do next topic. So we'll move to the Electoral College and whether this is unconstitutional. So Tom pointed this out, but there are four federal lawsuits that have been filed uh, arguing that while the Electoral College may be enshrined in the Constitution, the winner-take-all system utilized by it is not. Uh, the lawsuits have been filed by the attorney. What's his, his name? Is David Boyce. Boyce. Okay. And the League of United Latin American Citizens. Uh, he provided some quotes, say, by magnifying the impact of some votes and disregarding others, the winner-take-all system is not only undemocratic, but it also violates the constitutional rights of free association, political expression, and equal protection under the law. So we weave the 14th in with the First Amendment here. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Uh, This seems like a really interesting argument, Mm -hmm. uh, attacking the the Electoral College from a different way. Yeah. uh, a, a bit of background. This is a crowdfunded lawsuit, uh, which is a really interesting dimension hmm. to it. Uh, so David Boys isn't doing it free. He's doing it because it's been crowdfunded uh, by people who sort of share his belief. They filed four lawsuits, two in red states, two in blue suit, uh, states. Um, and just uh, so we're all on the same page, electors choose the president. States decide how they choose their electors. And most do it in a winner-take-all way. So, for example, in Texas... Trump took 52% of the vote, but took 100% of the electors. Um, So uh, Boyce is making a couple of interesting arguments here. The first is that the one-person, one-vote principle is violated uh, when a state doesn't acknowledge the value of the votes cast for the loser in the electoral college system. I'm not sure I agree with that, but, but that's one of the arguments. Um, the second is that there is a, uh, a deleterious effect on minority voters. Uh, this feels to me like First Amendment creep, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it is that minority voters are harmed in a way that majority voters aren't. Um, uh, mm-hmm. It's just, just as likely that, uh, you know, Naperville is going to lose an election. People in Naperville are going to lose an election, maybe in the midterms. Sure. Uh, and not have their, I shouldn't say the midterms, the next presidential election, not have their votes counted. Um, But the really compelling argument here is uh, all of these First Amendment association and and political speech sorts of things. Uh, Boys is a very big hitter. 
and that's what sort of got it on my radar mm-hmm. that I mean this is not um, you know a two-person public interest law firm filing a pro bono suit this is USB Microsoft this is this is a very big deal lawyer with a lot of support um, so I it just it struck me that it would be interesting to see what it would look like if we deconstruct the electoral college and produce a system that is effectively the majority vote wins by state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now here's my thought on this: if you if you were to move to that kind of system, it would have to be all at once. So he's pursuing it in four states. Mm-hmm. So if you do it in California, mm-hmm. uh, that fundamentally and California has to divide its electors. That changes the presidential election dramatically. So you can't right. do it piecemeal. It would have to no. be done all states at one time. Which is why he's making First and Fourteenth Amendment arguments. Yes. Because they would trump any state electoral law if you could prevail on those two claims. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? This seems appealing to me. Why mm-hmm. shouldn't I why shouldn't I be excited about this Tom? Because <laughs> this seems oh, I'm kind of excited about yeah. it. Back, back to uh, let's power to the people, right? Yeah. Uh, give Janice power to get out of that union if he doesn't want to be in it. And give the voter who cast a, a vote for the losing candidate at least some representation uh, in the final election results. I'm for both. It would seem, I don't know, it would seem to me that you would overcome this problem of having somebody win the Electoral College and somebody else win the popular vote. This mm-hmm. would get closer to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, to me, this seems like a, a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea. I, and and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he can prevail, actually. It, it feels to me like there is a movement in America to kind of reconstruct the way we do politics. Uh, gerrymandering, as we've talked about, is in front of the court. Uh, Illinois has a constitutional amendment now uh, filed just this week to create a nonpartisan uh, map commission. You probably remember we tried this a couple, three years ago and, yes. and failed for entirely political reasons. Uh, but they feel like they've cured the defects uh, that the courts found in the previous version of this. Um, here's an attack on the Electoral College. And, and I, I use attack not in a, in a negative sense here. It feels to me like people are saying we want to be engaged in the process, but we don't want to be duped by map drawers or Electoral College niceties that, that diminish our value. Well, All of that feels really good to mm-hmm. me. Right, and you give everybody their vote is equal, right? Yeah. So right now, if you're a Republican in California, your vote doesn't matter for presidential right. elections. Mm-hmm. Same thing, you know, in Texas, Hillary got like 40-some percentage of the vote mm-hmm. there. Those go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it feels, Welcome to my world, man. Right. A libertarian vote's right. never counted yes. for a hill of beans, right? Yes. <laughs> so and, and it, it's also very curious how they go about this, right? Making this argument against the Electoral College, is, it seems to me more thoughtful then I just mm-hmm. don't like the results of what's happening right and, yes. uh, and my sense is the electoral college is only going to get worse over time right as we continue to have this divide between rural and urban mm-hmm. areas that 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 divergence mm-hmm. may get more significant mm-hmm. um, yeah so I, I would be all for having greater representation mm-hmm. through states mm-hmm. we're, we're figuring stuff out Nick. I know <laughs> all these problems solved <laughs> that's right it only takes an hour and like yes. three beers <laughs> all right next topic <laughs> 
is Trump's takeover of the of conservatism complete? Uh, so this week, the CPAC, Conservative Political Action Conference, held its annual meeting. In years past, conservatives at CPAC expressed skepticism of Trump and his, and his brand of conservatism. Yet at this latest meeting, it was clear the movement has shifted dramatically towards Trump. Nationalism and anti-immigration sentiments were prominent. As evidence of this, uh, CPAC invited Marianne Le Pen, a granddaughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, niece of French, uh, what's her name, uh, Marie Le Pen, a number of more traditional conservatives expressed concerns, and one Mona Sharon was even booed by the audience. What are we to make of this shift? Uh, this does not feel like the conservative movement of William Buckley. And are we su- surprised by how quickly this occurred? Uh, a couple of years ago, Trump was you know, not a, a hero at CPAC, mm-hmm. and now he is. And it struck me, the tone, the content, the speakers, conservatism has shifted in a very different direction. Uh, for me... A troubling one. I, I liked the the Bill Buckley days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because so, it felt like it was a an honest intellectual. Not honest. It was a not rigorous. honest. <laughs> no, no, no. no it was, it was, that's not the right word. It was a rigorous intellectual debate, and I, I feel like the movement has drifted in a way that is less intellectually driven by ideas mm-hmm. and more by kind of a, I don't know what it is. Kind of an ugly side of of, of partisanship. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I, I I mean, from my perspective, I seeing this kind of transformation take place, and I don't necessarily agree that it's devolved into this nationalistic, you know, xenophobic, just I I, I don't you know horrific. Um, I'm just thinking of different ick words because sure, right. I'm stalling for time. <laughs> they, um, they, they cheered locker up at when when Trump gave the speech. Yeah, well, everybody does that. I do it at my home like every other day, just because. Um, no, I, I what I am taking out of this is I, I think there is a huge constituency uh, of the GOP and conservatives in general who have kind of kind of taken the reins of this and and agree with the sentiment, and I think that's partially in response to the previous administration and the actions of people at the other end of the political spectrum, as well as just kind of the openness of the way that you can express these feelings now. But I also think that true conservatives now have the opportunity to kind of separate themselves from that portion of the GOP that has kind of solidified itself. And you have the opportunity to create a new narrative similar to the way that we're creating new narratives among states, state and local governments that the political structure needs to change in a fundamental way. And that, in my opinion, is is a good development. But do you think those voices are being pushed out? Right. And that's my fear. I, I, if that were if it would be a fair conversation. But I, my fear is that some of those those voices are being pushed to the margins. Yeah. And I think they're all being that particular subset is being pushed to the margins enough where they're starting to coalesce and we're seeing some sort of mm-hmm. shift away from the traditional structure of the GOP into something new that can either influence the GOP on a fundamental level or create something new. So take that. I, I'm optimistic. Make this theme three Yeah, for take back your government, right? Mm-hmm. The gerrymandering, uh, the electoral college, and maybe this duopoly uh, I, I don't know that he's taken over conservatism as much as republicanism. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I, you know me, I'm I'm big on we need more than two political parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if if this coalescing that Nick is talking about turned into something that looked like libertarian, 
um, in some ways conservative thinking. I, I, I resist sort of being pushed toward that yeah. uh, libertarian-leading Republican sure. thing because they're really different. But I could imagine a scenario here where there is the sort of nationalistic, populist Republican Party and a third one that coalesces around ideas that in some ways look conservative, in some ways don't. Um, and I, it would be entirely good for us if, if we ended the two-party dominant system, I, I, I think. Yeah. I suspect you don't. Well, no, I, I'm, no actually, I'm... I'm you a, like the xenophobes? Is that, is that what no, you're saying? No, no. <laughs> My fear here is that within the conservative movement, the Max Boots, the Charlie Sykes, yeah. the Nicole Wallaces, those, those that are pushing back against yeah. where conservative is shifting, uh-huh. are are not going to be part of the future. Like, I would love... I would love that is if, a worry. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that it, 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 the movement gets so powerful, so strong, and, and maybe not. Maybe if Trump wins, it, it moderates. But my fear is, like, those arguments are engaging for me. Mm-hmm. You know, as a left-leaning individual, like, I, I find I'm engaged mm-hmm. by them. I'm pushed yeah. by them. Yeah. I have to re reevaluate where I'm at. With Trump, Trump is great for giggles, right? I and mean, he's an idiot, and we can talk about him. There's lots to talk about. But intellectually, I don't find him challenging, and I don't find some of the more nationalistic elements of the party challenging the same mm-hmm. way that I do mm-hmm. other elements of, of the, that more traditional conservative voice. And so that's a mm-hmm. fear for me. I mm-hmm. think the the democracy is better served when we have this rigorous debate. And yeah. I'm, I'm afraid it's going to go away. Yeah, um, I share your worry. Listen, on the left, you can make a case that the, the sort of Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren wing, which is as far to the left in many ways as Trump is uh, to the right, might pose the same threat there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, there's not much debate in Bernie Sanders' mind sure. about many questions. Tom, Tom, Democrats have to win an election. We're not, yeah. They're not good at that. <laughs> so, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, but, no, it's, it's, it's true. Yeah. We'll see if we don't wind up with the polls running against each other uh, again. This is a great point. Republicans are having this reckoning now. And if Democrats ever get in power again, they will have to have a similar reckoning. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen internationally is that there, if, if you think about the two-party systems, have shifted to kind of three parties. Mm-hmm. So you have a left-leaning, you have a right-leaning, like far left, far right. Mm-hmm. And then you oftentimes have a more moderate center centrist parties that includes mm-hmm. both leftist and, and or sort of left mm-hmm. and right elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that could ever happen in the United States, mm-hmm. but it would be that would be interesting as well to see yeah, whether would. there could be that yeah, type of political continuum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I agree. Yeah. yeah. All right. Topic number four. It is official. We are no longer a nation of immigrants. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> so, all right. We have a couple interesting developments on the immigration front. Late last week, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services changed its mission statement to eliminate a passage that describes the United States as, quote, a nation of immigrants. Then on Monday, the Supreme Court declined a White House request that it immediately decide whether the Trump administration can shut down the DACA program. Uh, the movement that the immigrants often call dreamers could remain in legal limbo for many months until Congress acts to make their status permanent. Uh, thoughts and reactions to these de- these developments, uh, either DACA or uh, removing the statement that we are a nation of immigrants. <laughs> oh, why don't we weave in uh, that a judge has taken the position that the executive branch does have the authority to build a fence or a wall. Yes, that, that's uh, right. Notwithstanding uh, property claims and, and uh, other objections. Yes, um, another so significant three big development yes. in, <laughs> in this area. Yeah, yeah. Nick, I, I mean the DACA thing. I, I wasn't really shocked at. What's going to be interesting is to see if Congress does have the the political will to do something in an expedient manner, which I don't think they do. And I think it's 
it'll be really telling that um, this realistically was was put on them. And I still agree with Trump that it should have been put on them. Uh, they need to be the voice of, of this particular movement and this particular political issue and show everyone that they can come together on something that is fundamentally agreeable from just about every facet of the American populace. Like, there's no reason that this shouldn't be done now. If you don't do this, both parties are going to suffer, probably the Republicans more than the Democrats in this particular situation. But it's not good for anybody. It's I, it's 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 shocking to me that this has not been done yet. Yeah. yeah. So the other one, whatever nation. Yeah, we know we know we're a nation. It's just dumb. What, I, dumb that they they removed it. That they removed it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, being a nation, it's just dumb that they're <laughs> we're saying we're immigrants. We're not immigrants. I've lived here all my life. Um, no, it, it's it's ridiculous. There's no reason to do something like that. It. it yeah, I don't know. It's another one of those things that we talk about every sure. week, and it's just dumb. Yeah. <laughs> Let me offer a more prosaic explanation for what I think happened yeah. here. Uh, uh, on a campus that is currently rewriting all of its departmental, divisional uh, mission statements, it went from a sort of aspirational, uh, emotive bit of language about securing promise as a nation of immigrants to, here's what this department does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it, it much more clearly says... We adjudicate requests for administra- or for immigration benefits and, and that sort of thing. Maybe in, in a universe where government tells you what exactly it's going to do, this mission statement does a better job of that. It, it, doesn't, say we're not, it doesn't say we're not a nation of immigrants. It says uh, citizen and immigration services does services. Sure. Right? And here's what they are. Right. So I don't know if they're securing promises and, and all that sort of thing as much as pushing paper around sure. and deciding mm-hmm. who's an immigrant here and who's not. It depends to me on what's the intent. If, if as you suggested, the intent was to be more practical and yeah. pragmatic, then I give them a pass. Mm-hmm. But I'm not so sure with the Trump administration. Right. And, if, if and that's the, fair. If the intent is to uh, is symbolic in the sense of moving in this anti-immigration uh-huh. direction, then it's more problematic mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I believe you have to have borders, you have to have rules, those rules have to be enforced. But at, at our core, we are a nation Absolutely. of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And, and we too often forget get the role that this played and continues to play in our economy. So to me, it's, you have to look at the intent. Uh, like you, Nick, the DACA thing seems to me, I don't I don't understand why they can't get this yeah. done. Mm-hmm. This seems an easy win for both parties. Nobody's going to get real hit hard either way. The good well, win for Trump. Yeah, I, one of the, maybe a fourth thing that I heard a little bit this week is that uh, both legal immigrants and those on waiting lists have started to express resentment of the privileged place that dreamers have had mm-hmm. in the public discourse. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 there's, a, there's a part of me that gets this, right? Uh, so if it takes 10 years to get citizenship one way and it takes uh, legislative fiat another, I could imagine that group being resentful. I don't know that they're a big enough electoral body that that's right. what people are worried about. But um, there is a part of the narrative about dreamers that uh, it seems to me is a little more nuanced than we all agree, let's just grant citizenship and be done with it. Uh, And ironically, it's not nativists that think this. It's immigrants. Right. Not all of them. But but, but this has become a more vocal group, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not sure if... I still think... I don't know if if Republicans get hurt by this. I think Trump can play this well enough where Democrats also 
could get hit if this doesn't get done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just, oh, yeah. It seems like a just a time bomb that they should knock out of the way so they can deal with more mm-hmm. pressing well, issues. I, I mean, kind of jumping off of your your point, Tom. This, I, I mean, there there needs to be some sort of movement, regardless, especially if we're talking about a fundamental shift in the thinking of how our political institutions mm-hmm. work. There needs to be a movement towards comprehensive immigration reform, whatever that looks like, instead of continuously going down this road of looking at these special cases where we have to waste political capital and time and money to to figure out one issue that isn't going to help the vast majority of immigrants who are either legally trying to get into this country or you know, Mm -hmm. we need to figure out what to do about illegal immigration, Mm -hmm. whether you agree with people being able to stay uh, stay here or not. There needs to be a doctrine that we follow instead of this piecemeal bullshit that we keep dealing with. And we forget the way in this shifted. When you go back to the Bill uh, Clinton administration, you know, Bill Clinton em- embraced some of the same ideas that Donald Trump did about mm-hmm. borders. So it, it mm-hmm. used to be a Democratic issue. Now it's mm-hmm. shifted to a Republican issue. Uh, I, I agree with you, Nick. I think there's room for meaningful conversation. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a shame to see these uh, the, the DACA people uh, used as a bargaining chip. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? I mean, it, if you can't solve the problem, let's say, of merit-based immigration versus uh, familial relation, I'll stay away from this chain yeah. uh, immigration it's, thing. Um, if you can't solve that problem on its merits without holding somebody hostage, there's right. something really wrong with the legislative yes. process. I, mm-hmm. I agree with that. No. All right, final topic. <clears throat> What's worse, Nick? Cronyism or nepotism? <laughs> All right, example of nepotism. (laughs) Uh, We'll start with Ivanka, then we'll get to Jared. But this weekend, Ivanka Trump, who has absolutely zero experience in diplomacy, and this this bugs me, uh, led the U.S. delegation to the Winter Olympics and briefed South Korean President uh, Moon on the administration's new sanctions on North Korea. Uh, Additionally, Jared Kushner is also causing chaos, and we can talk about him in a second. Cronyism. Trump's longtime personal pilot is on the short list to lead the FAA. In describing... The pilot, his pilot, uh, John Duncan, Trump said, quote, my pilot, he's a smart guy and knows what's going on. He said the government is using the wrong equipment and it's instituting massive multi-billion dollar projects, but they're using the wrong type of equipment. <laughs> you just, you cannot make this stuff. I know. <laughs> so. It's like a, a grandfather talking about their grandson. Yes. He told me I should really buy this uh. type of car because he, it's really, it's, yeah. Um. We're waiting for your answer, just, which, like, which is I, worse, my friend. I don't, I, I, come on, man. The FAA, like, really? Because he's just, he's a smart guy. That's bad, dude. Like, I I understand that Ivanka doesn't have any experience in diplomacy. It's the Olympics. I don't really give a shit. And you, it's briefing the South Korean president. About the new sanctions, yeah, that's a little bit of an issue. But at the same time, if you're talking about the safety the safety of every American who's going to fly in the foreseeable future, I'm I'm going to go with that one. Go I'm sorry, to, you're going cronyism. I'm going cronyism. Yeah, yeah. Tom. Yeah, uh, there are states that allow people who have been sentenced to death to pick the way they get executed. This question reminds me of that. Would you rather be shot, <laughs> electrocuted, uh, or given the needle? Uh, they're all awful, yeah. right? Uh, but I'm going to go with Nick. If, if we're going to dismantle um, the air traffic control system on the basis of a pilot's um, 
knowing what's going on. Yeah. That worries me more than Ivanka Trump going to the uh, Trump going to the Olympics. But we're using all the wrong equipment. We, uh, yes. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I, we probably are. <laughs> I'm going nepotism, and and I don't know why, but the 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 Ivanka and Jared stuff just grinds on me in a way that I can't really understand. Diplomacy matters, and you you are surrounded with people who could actually go and make a good briefing, who could do this, and you pick your daughter or your son-in-law, uh, who now has had a security clearance removed from top security to just secure secret, 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 secret. sort of <laughs> sort of security. Right. And you know, and apparently the, the story that broke last night is that there are, there are a number of countries, four countries, who are trying to leverage his complicated business interest against the United States. So there, you know, it, it just. There are reasons you don't bring your family into positions of power. And this is, I mean, we see this in the Middle East all of the time, these mm-hmm. corrupt family dictatorships. Mm-hmm. And it just, God, it grinds on me uh, yeah. that mm-hmm. that uh, this is what this is the best that we've got is, is Jared Kushner. Uh, so you're going to be okay getting on a plane if this guy gets in? I don't, I don't fly that often. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that's a bad decision too, right? I, I'm hoping that th- this guy, he can fly a plane. He can fly a plane. He can fly a plane. That's, that's a certain level of intelligence. That's like saying I can hit a baseball. I should be the commissioner of the, the <laughs> of Major League Baseball. But I think the skill set to get to being a pilot, I, I'm still not excited about him heading the FAA, the FAA if this happens. But I'm more troubled that international diplomacy is now in the hands of Javanka. Like that I'm just staying with, yes. would you rather be shot or stabbed? <laughs> that's right. no, nobody wins. These are both ghastly right. things. Oh. Why do you do this every week? It's always these horrible... <laughs> well, that's the fun way to end. But it's so horrible. I, you know, I bet... So Jared Kushner, I, I think he's going to get pushed out soon. I think that uh, John Kelly, the chief of staff, has had enough of this silliness. He was the one who basically said, you can't pass the security clearance. Yep. No more secret you know, presidential daily right. briefings for you, which is the right call. Mm-hmm. If a guy can't, can't make it through the traditional security clearance, he can do other things. He can work on whatever, the campaign. So I wouldn't be surprised if his role in the administration starts to shift, um, mm-hmm. which would be, I, I think, a good decision. Agreed. Get somebody else in there. Do you think he's actually going to get pushed out, though? They'll, they'll put him on the campaign. I mean, they announced today the, the 2020 campaign. He's apparently leading that. So you can, you can give him some gig there. I don't mm-hmm. know. So do you think you will see this kind of, um, uh, what's the right word, um, focus on these types of uh, security clearance issues on future administrations, especially Democratic administrations? Because, I, I mean, realistically, this is something that prior to this administration was not a huge focus, considering how many people sure. can just be in positions without having to actually go through sure. the you know, they, they can get a temporary clearance and that's fine and we'll process it sometime in the next eight years. Do you think we'll see that? I, I would like to. I would think that obviously, you know, there's going to there's got to be an interim clearance for people who get in. Like, I, I get that. That's just a logistical issue. But if it gets to the point where a year in you haven't been cleared and the FBI is saying we're not going to clear you, mm-hmm. find somebody else. And if you can't, that's that's problematic. You know, it's, well, it's the latter thing that's problematic. Yeah. We're not sure we can clear you. Right. As opposed to we're dragging our feet. And mm-hmm. I mean, because, listen, we have turned the presidency into a thing where you cannot get cabinet appointments. You can't get undersecretaries. You can't get yeah. your administration in place until you're running for reelection. Right. This yeah. is this is horrifying. Right. Yeah, that's that's a whole other issue where it's uh, everything gets bogged down. So yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. yeah, totally right. Kushner's got to go. He's got to go. He's got to go. <laughs> Suzanne will be very happy. That's right. Um, shameless plugs. 
Uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Where the Twitter followers are starting to grow. Uh, it, you know, as we say this every week, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share us with your friends. You know, we're a young prod podcast trying to grow our listenership. So the, the best thing you can do for us is to, to pass us on to your friends. And uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. You can find all of our beers at Untapped. Uh, we are, Nick, we're everywhere now, right? So, yes. Uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry. Um, <laughs> just about, oh, Google Play Music. Uh, just about anywhere that you can find a podcast we are on, except Spotify. They're, they're dragging their feet on that. You're, you're good with all this stuff. I'm, I try. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Thanks Tom. This is here. great. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Cheers.